Well, good morning to you all. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of your word. And it is a privilege, Lord, because we get to see and understand the living and almighty God. And moreover, Lord, we are free to read it. We are free to have as many copies of it as we like. We know that it's not always true for our brothers and sisters in other countries. Lord, we pray that we would take your word to heart today and that we would be changed by forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. But our text today is from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. So please could you turn there now. One of the most famous sermons that was ever delivered, and you may have heard of this, was titled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it was the work of a man named Jonathan Edwards, and it was preached in the year 1741. So that definitely makes him a famous dead guy. Now, clearly it had quite an effect at the time because Edwards was repeatedly interrupted before its conclusion by people in the congregation moaning and crying out, What shall I do to be saved? And I'd certainly like to have that problem in this building someday. However, Jonathan Edwards is also famous, although he's still dead, for a list of resolutions that were written in his journals as a young man. And there are 70 of them altogether, so I'm guessing that you'll be glad if I don't read them out all one by one. But that said, they do have a great deal to offer all of us as believers, and I would encourage you to look them up. In fact, I do have a copy with me today, and if you'd be interested to look at that, come and see me after the service, and I'll run you off a copy. But today, I just want to mention two of them, which are resolutions five and six. They read, Resolved, never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I personally can. And then, Resolved, to live with all my might while I do live. Time. It seems that Mr. Edwards understood very well the importance of time. There are only, and exactly, 60 seconds in each unforgiving minute. What are we to do with them? Will they be used for good or for evil, or will they even be used at all? For sure, no matter how hard we try, we can never, ever take them back for another go, no matter how much we may have enjoyed or regretted them. They tick by anonymously. Tick. 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 There goes our life, for better or for worse. But our sermon today confronts us with the question of how we spend our time. Will we lose it or will we improve it, as Jonathan Edwards has put it? To start to figure that out, let's read today's text now, Ephesians 5, and I'll start in verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. 
but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. I like this translation of the New King James Version, where it starts here in verse 15 with these words, See then. For me, it creates such a clear connection with what has just been said about Christ giving us light. For it is only when we have his light that we can see to walk confidently in truth and righteousness. The consequent question then is threefold. Will we just stand there in the pool of Christ's light and do nothing? Will we perhaps just run off madly and the hundred metres dash for people with no sense of direction? Or will we move forward with purpose and with intent? Paul is very clearly in favour of number three. Move. See that you walk circumspectly. What does that word mean? Despite it sounding like something circular and then perhaps pointless, going around and around, circumspection actually means to pay attention. To put it more formally, to be attentive to all the circumstances of a case or the probable consequences of an action. To be cautious, prudent and wary. Now I'd say that's very illuminating. Within the broad context of this book of Ephesians, we already have a motivation to move, which is our gracious salvation through Jesus. We have a purpose to move, which is to do the good works that God has prepared for us. We have the equipment to move, thanks to the spiritual gifts that we have all been given. And then, most recently, we can see that we also have the vision to move, thanks to the light of Christ. So, with all this on board, it might seem that we ought to immediately go charging off as fast as possible, waving our swords and shouting as we press forwards. But that isn't what we read here, is it? We ought to move, yes, but we ought to move with intent and consideration. If I am going to stab someone with my sword, perhaps it would be a good idea to think who I might need to stab and why and where. It makes sense, you know. Thinking through this package of motivation and purpose, equipment and vision, we ought to remember that although we do share equally in some parts, for example, if we are all sinners and undeserving of the gift of salvation, there are other things in which we are not the same. Certainly the gifts that we have are different. We all do have them. God has gifted every believer. But it's pretty example to imagine, uh, it's pretty easy to exact and I hate that. It is pretty easy to imagine, for example, what a passionate evangelist might look like trying to be a compassionate pastor. They will probably be all mouth and no ears. Furthermore, we are all at different levels of spiritual maturity and so what might be easy or obvious for one might not be so for the other. And therefore it's wise to be circumspect about what we try to do. Remember, it's not just our reputation at stake, but it's that of God too. 
we do need to think before we act, but oftentimes the thinking part has gone on holiday. Last week, many of us here will have heard Betty Boss's very encouraging testimony. And you might remember that she mentioned those little blackouts that we sometimes have in the traffic when we're away with the ferries. How did I get to the other side of Dublin Street Bridge? A lot of life can be like that. We often live and work on autopilot when we ought to have our hands firmly on the controls. The Greek word that is rendered here as circumspecty is written in a thing called the present imperative tense. And that means that it is supposed to be an action done now and it is done continuously. So we can have this picture of always moving, yet simultaneously looking all around us, digesting what we see, and then deciding what to do about it. Fighter pilots have a name for this state of mind. They call it situational awareness. Aerial combat is a very unforgiving business. At all times they must be sure of where their aircraft is pointing, who is sharing the sky with them and why, what the state of the plane is. Are my weapons armed? Which ones? Do I have enough fuel? Am I exceeding the abilities of the airframe? And there is no time to appoint a committee to study each one of these. They must decide now, since to fail in considering even one of these matters can mean death and disaster, which are quite serious consequences. When you think about it, the work of a Christian is serious business too. Because we only have one life, one go at each second that we live, what if we could make a difference in someone else's life for eternity in just that one second? Surely that would be a worthy use of our time. And we can begin to live this way by cultivating the habit of paying more attention to what is going on around us, understanding what its potential is, and then acting in a godly way. It will seem hard at first, perhaps, but like most things, the more you do it, the easier it will get. Now, I want to say here that I'm not advocating some incredibly intense and unrelenting lifestyle where we become riddled with guilt the instant that we aren't doing something productive. Let's remember the example that we have. Our Heavenly Father rested after his work of creation. And he calls us to do the same. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That awareness that comes with a circumspect walk does have space within it for the recognition that there are times when we must rest and reflect. I read in a devotional this week this line. It said, If you don't come apart, you will come apart. So it is both righteous and wise to take time to come apart from the work we do and to rest so that we, we will be refreshed and ready to take on whatever the Lord has planned for us thereafter. That said, I think that I'm not just speaking for myself when I say that there's definitely a gap between what I do get done and what I could do if I try to provide it. There is a challenge here for us all and we will do well to remember that God will ask us to account for the way that we have spent our time. But fear of consequence is not the best reason to try harder. 
the principal reasons we ought to be serving our Lord should be grounded in deep gratitude, in love and thanksgiving for the wonderful way that he has rescued us from our sins and certain death through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We are saved by grace and our lives thereafter should be lived by and through grace too. Not for. The next point I'd like to draw to your attention is that our text here says that we should be moving, not as people who are foolish, but people who are wise. If you look at this a bit more carefully, you'll realise that we can't read an either-or statement into this. We can't actually say that moving incautiously automatically makes us a fool, and that being careful automatically makes us wise. It seems there that it is possible to be both circumspect and a fool. It's an idea that needs to be explored because those words don't seem to fit together very naturally. How is it that you can simultaneously be careful and a twit? Hello, my name is Dave and I am a twit, but I am a careful twit. It doesn't really work as an introduction, does it? How do we make sure that we cannot be described in that way? On reflection, I believe that the determining factor between wisdom and foolishness is our terms of reference. In other words, who do we follow? What or who is our example and our marker for life? You see, if we follow the wisdom of the world, then the decisions that we make may well seem to be well thought through and right in Mr. Average's eyes, and yet be incomparable foolishness to God. And you know, if we're honest, we'll admit that in terms of worldly reasoning, the way society deals with a lot of the issues we struggle with as Christians, such as prostitution and abortion and euthanasia and the whole, the whole gay thing, well, actually makes sense. They've been thought through by clever and rational people. In fact, by cleverer and more rational people than ourselves. And consequently, the arguments that they make seem logical and sound. However, no matter how wonderful they seem, they are ultimately wrong because they are using the wrong standard to judge their truth. And the problem is that choosing the wrong standard leads you further and further off course. Let's say that I was in the middle of the ocean, in my boat, looking for signs of fish below me on the fish finder. Ah, there's a big clump of them. So, I stop my engine and I drop my line. Surely I'm going to catch a big fish now. Surely. The problem is that I'm not anchored to the bottom. And so, while I dangle my line, hopefully, my boat is going to drift off at the mercy of the wind and the waves. And it's going to end up who knows where, most likely where there are no fish at all. And that is what relative morality is like, when we only compare what we are going to do with what we just did. The modern love of dis- discarding God's surely anchored island of Scripture in favour of self-determined reasoning, no matter how brilliant that might be, is only certain to result and the standard of acceptable behaviour drifting off into regions unknown. Where their monsters are. And this is how it is possible to be careful 
and foolish at the same time by choosing to live without an anchor. So, how can we escape this faith? Well, I've got to make the same clear call as always. Read the book. Can I hear that? Read the book. We must pick up our Bibles and study them and get the wisdom that is written there within us if we are going to walk in a way that is both circumspect and wise. Let us not forget that Satan is not a passive enemy. He's not waiting for us to slip up. He is actively pacing around. In fact, he's squirting oil on the floor and he's dropping banana skins. He's constantly looking for ways to distract us from walking on the right path and take us away from doing the work that God has given us. It is not for nothing a little bit later in Ephesians we're going to read God's word described as the sword of the Spirit because that sharp blade will carry every attack that the devil makes if we are holding it. Let's pause here just to take a quick review of what we've covered so far. We've spoken about the relentless nature of time. We've answered the question about the manner in which we might usefully use it, not by doing nothing, not by being pointlessly busy, but by being purposefully aware, circumspect in our actions. Then we've acknowledged that there is a space within a wise lifestyle to relax, to contemplate, to enjoy. The Lord made it, and it is good. And then most recently we have considered the possibility that circumspection isn't invariably connected to wisdom. It is possible to use the wrong point of reference when considering an action, thereby do things that look wise to humans, but are actually a bit dumb in God's scheme of things. The answer to avoiding that dead end lies in the diligent study of Scripture. So, what comes next? 16, of course, let's read our text again. See that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. I think there's a very natural progression in here, because these two verses clearly give us the whole picture. There's the objective, the way to achieve it, and the reason for the effort. We've dealt to the objective already, to aim to walk circumspectly, and so now we must look at the way to do so which, as it says here, is to redeem the time. What does that mean? Well, in this context, to redeem simply means to buy up, to gain something, especially an advantage or an opportunity. And the sense that the original Greek has used gives the idea of doing this for yourself or for your own advantage, of buying up the chance, the season, the space of time in which something is seasonable and of turning each opportunity to the best advantage for oneself. So the picture we could have would be that for our own benefit we are to be habitually buying up all that is anywhere to be bought and not allowing the moment to pass by without notice but to make it one's own. At last! A scriptural mandate for industrial scale shopping. Yay! Darling, I simply had to buy this fishing rod because God said I had to do it. 
Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but of course this isn't the meaning here at all. Remember what we are reading from. It isn't a shiny catalogue, but it is the very words of God. And so anything to be obtained will always be firstly for his glory, and secondly our good. And that kind of narrows things down a little bit, I think. You may have a question by now. If I'm going to be buying something, as it says here, what is the currency that I will use? If I think about what I might have to offer God, I have to recognize that in fact, I have very little to give to him. I know that salvation is an unmerited gift from the Lord. There is absolutely nothing I can do to buy it. And it is not for sale anywhere for any amount of anything that was made in creation. Giving stuff that God made back to him is pointless. It has no value to him. So, what coin might be used then? Well, the answer, of course, is within us. It is ourselves. We pay by the giving of ourselves through surrendering our time, our abilities and our obedience to the Lord. And he loves to receive them. I don't know about you. Perhaps you've had this figured out long ago, but sometimes I've wondered about exactly what it means to give all of yourself to God. I mean, how do you do that? What is the actual process? How do you know when you've done it properly or not? I have enough trouble simply figuring out why I do some stuff. Just as Paul says in Romans 7, for what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that is what I do. You know, if I cannot control or understand me, by myself, how can I ever be sure that I've handed over all of me to God? It just seems so inevitable that there's going to be a rebellious but constantly dashing off hither and yon and doing its own thing. So maybe... Success is there in the two hard baskets. And that can't be true though. I believe that there is an answer to this problem right here in Ephesians, right here in what we're reading. It occurs to me that what we are seeing today is a tremendously practical way of handing our lives and persons over to God. By always seeing our daily lives as a kind of currency to spend on his behalf. If we take this idea of spending the moments of our lives for God and God alone and make its goals one of the first questions we ask ourselves when we are about to put that foot forward or part those lips for an opinion, is this for God? Is this for his glory? Is this a worthy expenditure of me? Then bit by bit, day by day, we will hand over more and more of ourselves into his hands. And that, friends, is the place we need to be. The whole of us cradled in the Master's hands, not hanging on by a finger or sprawled with a leg hanging over the edge. We are right inside His hands. That is where we will find peace and hope and love. So what are some of the practical things we might do in a real day to work towards what we might call circumspenditure? Well, firstly, I think we ought to have a plan. 
A random and unplanned day is a lot less likely to be useful than one that has a good plan. As well as laying out normal work and domestic duties, it should include some space, as I've said, for the unexpected and for rest and reflection on the Word of God. And also at the end of such a day it is worthwhile thinking back over the things that we have done. Were they successful? If so, why? And if not, how could we change them? Were we too ambitious? Or maybe not ambitious enough? And so on. Next we might spend some time to think through the things that tend to steal productive time from us and watch out for them so that they can be avoided altogether. Make a list and check it twice. I, for example, have this tendency to walk into my workshop intending to deal with one thing. But on the way in, I see something else that looks a lot more interesting or easier. And I'll do that first. So things that need to be done end up lying on the bench and they don't get done. So to be really productive, I need to stay focused by thinking through the things that need to be done in an orderly way and this is also true of my spiritual life. You should never let the urgent overwhelm the important. It is unfortunate that a lot of the time our senses and our mind are very me-focused and so we fail to see opportunities to spend ourselves for the benefit of others. It will be helpful to try to cultivate a different way of seeing things around us. That situational awareness I spoke about earlier makes us alive to the needs and potential of other people. And this might be done at a number of levels. For example, we could just pray for someone and they might not even know about it. We could physically help them, say, to paint a wall or to babysit their kids, which would be a pretty big sacrifice in some cases. But best of all are the times when we are able to engage with other folk in things of eternal significance. Surely, surely there can be no better way to spend our moments than in leading others to Christ. We need to spend more time looking outward and less time loving inward. When should we start this work? Say sometime next week might be convenient. Perhaps. No. We must start now. The Greek word that has been used here for time, when we read redeeming the time, is a word kairos. It is not chronos. And this means that it refers to a season or an opportunity that will pass. Probably never to be repeated. Kronos, on the other hand, speaks of little time, the ticking of a clock. So this deliberate use of Kairos is meant to shout to us, seize the day, seize this moment, because you only get this particular one once. Don't waste it on idleness or selfish indulgence. And this brings me then to the final part of verse 16. A little while back I spoke about the objective, the method and the reason that are contained in today's verses. And we haven't spoken about the last one yet, the reason. Why 
must be circumspect and spend ourselves in all these ways. Why? It is because the days are evil, says Paul. Since the fall we live and move and have our physical being in an evil world. We cannot escape it at all. And because this is so, there is only one other option to giving ourselves for God. And that is giving ourselves for Satan. Now, we tend to think about such a thing as requiring strange chants and pentagrams and bowls of goat's blood. But actually to take that position, none of that is necessary. I'm guessing that we have all heard the saying that all evil needs to triumph is that good men do nothing. That's exactly right, isn't it? As Christians, we should never want evil to triumph. The next part of the equation then is the personal question. Can I ever be said to be doing nothing? But what does nothing actually mean? Well, in any given circumstance, there are basically only three options and two of them can properly fill the description of nothing here in our saying. The first option is that we can literally do nothing. We can freeze in the corner and hope that no one notices us. And this may seem harmless. However, thinking it through will show us that doing nothing is not for God. Hence, it is actually against Him. There is no amoral grace space in which we can act independently from good or evil. And so when we try to get in the middle and sit on the fence, what we are actually doing in reality is standing on the enemy's side of it. Not good. The second option is that we can deliberately and knowingly act against God. It's kind of foolish, but at least it is an honestly oppositional position with fair consequences. And I can't recommend it since those consequences are very serious and they are long-lasting, eternal in fact. The third option is that we can deliberately act for him. And this is possible in so many, many ways. If we call ourselves Christians, if we take his name, then this is the only thing we can and should do, to spend each and every moment of our lives for his sake to make sure that evil does not triumph because we did those other two kinds of nothing. We must walk circumspectly because the days are evil. So, we're pretty much done here, but I do want to leave you with some homework. I know you all enjoy homework. Because I'm in a generous mood today, to end, I've decided to give you a minute. Literally. My minions and I are now going to hand you a voucher for one minute. And there are some strings attached, however. I want you to take your minute home and then carefully decide what you're going to do with it. Will it be used for option one, two, or three? Will you be circumspect? Will you walk as wise or as a fool? Will you redeem your time profitably or not? For sure, whatever you decide, the days will remain evil. 
And as believers, we have a call to stand against that. So, let's not be found wanting. Right, does everybody have their minute? Okay, stand up please. I want you to hold your minute up and we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this minute. Thank you for every minute that you have given us and every minute you will give us. Lord, we testify that you hold our lives in your hands. We pray that through your Holy Spirit we would take this minute and use it wisely. We would use it for your glory. And Lord, that would not be the only minute in which we do this. We pray that you would give us more opportunities and more vision to use our time. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.